first story deals with a subculture of heavy metal music that some feel is sending a dangerous message to your kids. The forces of evil on the dark side of devil right. And I want to talk tonight about the devil and demons and witches and wizards. And we just mix it up with hardcore and aggression and come out with something that we think an original sound. Loud, fast, heavy, you know. Well, what do you got? What do you got? You're listening to Riff Worship, the podcast that attempts to answer the age-old question, what makes a riff? Why do we worship all things the riff? I'm one of your hosts, Austin Paulson. With me, as always, is the great bald hope, Arkansas's prodigal, <laughs> prodigal son. It's Dylan Adams. How are you, buddy? I'm good, bud. They've turned me into a video drone cosplay, <laughs> but I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, you feeling all right? Walking around pretty, yeah. pretty good? Yeah, uh, feeling pretty good. You know, going from... Uh, from laying to standing is a little difficult from time to time, but you know we're we're doing pretty good. I'm all patched up. That gorilla glue does wonders. Between that and the 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 shiny duct tape, the silver stuff, yeah, oh, we're yeah. good to go. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you're back because we have a uh, wonderful standing achievement of riffage here today with us. This is perhaps one of the most important albums in death metal. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is before. Uh, Members of this band look like Jonah Hex, or there were two different sects of this band, basically two different versions, uh, perhaps like a crowning achievement in their discography. I am, of course, talking about Covenant, uh, Morbid Angel's third record released in 1993. Uh, it was released 30 years ago, uh, back in June on the 22nd, uh, along with another album that we'll be getting to in the future. Uh, We've got some pretty cool things in the works for that, but uh, we won't disclose any information. Uh, I guess I want to start with, do you remember where you first heard this record in particular? Yep. Um, The first Morbid Angel track I ever heard was uh, Dominate, which came off the album after this. Um, Great intro track, but the first Morbid Angel record I ever bought was this one. Yeah. Uh, I think I may have heard Dominate just on YouTube, back in the early years of YouTube. Um, but I definitely I definitely bought this one sight unseen. I think I ordered it from Hastings Music um, based off of Choosing Death and mm. was like, all right, this is like their peak, I guess, at that point. Um, picked it up, sight unseen, and I think not terribly long after I ordered it, Headbangers Ball played the video for Rapture. Uh, okay. which I saw first. Um, and hearing that was like, all right, this is, this definitely seems death metal. I could grasp onto. It wasn't too far into the, the brutal realm. It wasn't too far into like the technical realm. It still had some like thrash tie-ins. Um, you know, it was as accessible as death metal could be at this point, And it sounded good. Um, the video was definitely something. Um, yeah. Seeing that video and seeing the connection between it and the God of Emptiness video uh, later on, because I don't think I saw God of Emptiness till well after I had the album. Yeah, I think um, the videos for sure play an important part in this, and we'll we'll get Absolutely. into that uh, as well. But I want to say I probably the first record I ever had of theirs was likely the sophomore record, "Blessed Are the Sick." And I remember ordering it from Earache. It was like the first time I'd ever ordered something overseas. And right. I, I didn't even know that, that, it, that I had ordered something like this. And uh, yeah. I got the, uh, the shipper, uh, the cardboard shipper in the mail. It had like the Royal Air Force or the Royal Mail yeah. on the uh, stamp on the, uh, on the uh, box. And uh, it was a picture disc because I don't know if that was the only copy they had at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just glad to have it. Uh, I think I saw the title track video as well, which is also that very the one like being drugged through the woods or the yep, the yeah. leaves. Yep. Yeah, there's it's very gothic. Uh, there's like some weird cult. It just kind of I think this and death uh, lack of comprehension. I watched at the same time and I was like, this yeah. is the weirdest thing. Uh, like almost even scared of it too. Where you're like, I don't know if I should be listening to something like this. I don't know if I should be watching these videos. Uh, but I was instantly hooked drawn back in i think i got uh altars of madness after that as well on cd and right which i would say too there is like certainly a progression from the first the second and the third record oh you know, yeah the first being 
certainly more thrash minded, uh, rooted in that style of music. Mm-hmm. It's still like kind of early on. You do have death metal elements, but uh, the second one, I think, Blessed Are the Sick, uh, gets a little darker, uh, gets a little more uh, has a bleaker. Sabbath kind of vibe. To yeah, it. it's much slower. Whereas this record, there are really it's uncompromising. There are no yeah. hold, no holds barred. It's really what they wanted to do from the start, which is really crazy to consider when thinking that this is a uh, their major label uh, debut, at least in North America. Yep. So uh, there are, I mean, the, the way this kind of came about at all, you know, I think they had already been signed to Earache at the time. Uh, they're the first American band on that British label, uh, which is also home to Entombed, Napalm Death, Carcass, Godflesh, and the like. And the the funny story, I think their manager at the time uh, met with the uh, head of a pretty important label. It was like an offshoot of Warner. Um, mm-hmm. Giant Records. Giant Records. Yeah. And this is, uh, I think, it's, is it uh, Irving Azoff? That name is sounds the, familiar. I believe that is the head of, the, of Giant Records. And he was like a uh, former executive at MCA, and he had like recently founded this label just a few years prior. And you know their their mission or their goal typically was top forty. You know in R and B, they weren't. Kind of reminds me of like Casablanca Records, where yep. in the seventies that was like a disco label, and then they signed Kiss of all bands. This was certainly a weird anomaly. Where all right, yeah, let's sign Morbid Angel. And I guess Azoff was kind of uh, impressed with what Morbid Angel was able to accomplish on a very small scale, like being an indie label like yeah. Earache. And so they, uh, the manager, Morbid Angel's manager and Azoff like went out for ice cream and he was basically like, what do you want? Uh, you want like chocolate chip? Uh, all right. Yeah, I'll sign him. That was pretty much it. It lasted like 10 minutes. It's, it's remarkable too, to think that, you know, as we know what death metal is in 2023, that in 1993, after the genre had been around maybe a span of five, maybe six years by this point, let's say 87 right. loosely. Uh, I mean, that's up for debate, but you know, a, a subgenre that had been around for six years, uh, its larger bands, maybe its forerunners are being signed to, uh, or its frontrunners rather, are being signed to major labels. I mean, you had Death on Relativity. Uh, you had Morbid Angel with Giant. You had Carcass, uh, I believe Napalm Death, uh, that had a tie-in with Columbia Records as well yeah. through Earache. Which is largely in part of this this whole Covenant release. Yeah. I, I think Metal Blade may have even had some tie-ins with Sony mm. at this point, uh, like Sony BMG. Um, so it's it's remarkable to think that I don't know if this is like the major labels just not understanding what's going on and they're just scrambling to find something because this was this was during peak grunge period too. Yeah. Of like, hey, let's sign all of these underground bands. And of course that leads to like the weirdness of the early nineties where majors were signing weird bands. I mean, I think Fudge Tunnel had yeah. like connections with Columbia, which is an interesting, an interesting tie in there. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned grunge, and I want to add that Giant Records was not only trying to tap into death metal, like this trend mm-hmm. at the time, they were also trying to tap into grunge, and they actually say, signed Tad around the same time as Morbid Tad. Angel. Yeah. So they released, I, I want to say, uh, Inhaler. Inhaler. And, uh, you know, unfortunately didn't perform as well as Covenant did, but they were trying their hand in a few different things uh, throughout. Uh, this time here, um, you know, and I want to say, again, historically, this was not a label that had even, this wasn't on the radar for this label. Right. I mean, the Azov was known for uh, managing like the Eagles. And uh, I want to say Dan Fogelberg and like he's from uh, like central Southern Illinois. He like, he, mm-hmm. uh, uh, was based in like Champaign where Ario Speedwagon was from. So that was his first band that right. he had ever managed. Um, so to get to this point where you're like this death metal band from Tampa, Florida is, you know, potentially the next big thing is, is pretty cool. That is, that's something to really think about, you know, Hey, this death metal band that, 
you know, talks about Lovecraftian horror, Satanism, you know, all sorts of different like occult topics. You know, that's this is the next big thing. This is the next big thing. Um, the fact that labels were still like in that mindset of thinking about, okay, what's going to be the next Nirvana? Because that's I'm mm-hmm. sure that's what was being referred to in this type of this form of music. You know, you know, maybe we can get a, a band to sell three million copies. You know, that's a success yeah. or it could be perceived as a failure. And, you know, during this period of time, like records were still a thing. Like sound scan was a big yeah. deal at this point. Um, and seeing a band like Morbid Angel uh, get signed, swept up in the major label kind of flow um, and being deemed as a success for selling 150,000 at, at that point, uh, which arguably... I believe in the research I'd done on this record that maybe their records beforehand had already sold that much. Oh, wow. maybe had sold a little bit less. Um, so, I mean, they were able to generate that through earache um, and, and create this notoriety for them. I mean, there was this, there was a legendary status around this band by this point, you know, they were considered one of the first death metal bands. I mean, they'd been around since like 84. Yeah. Um, they had formed in, I believe Charlotte, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they moved to Tampa at one point because they've had, you know, a few different lineups here and there. I don't think Dave Vincent was the original bass player. Uh, Pete Sandoval was not the original drummer. I believe Mike Browning was the original drummer and he went on the form Nocturnus. Mm-hmm. Uh, another really cool death metal band. If you're into like kind of alien storytelling, like that's that's a band to really be uh, get into. One of the death metal bands that really started using synthesizers. So like this band's got a weird history and there's a lot of bands that definitely were influenced by this band from the, from the get, uh, the get go that have gone on to become legendary bands in their own right. Um, but this album in particular has proven to be this kind of little engine that could for a major label of, you know, the, the giant records deal, I believed helped more in promotion and distribution. Mm-hmm. than it did actually with overall sales. I believe if the sales were generated, it was by the band itself, uh, just by word of mouth, touring. Uh, I mean, we're going to get into this, but they had some pretty high-profile tours based off yeah. the giant connection. Uh, you know, uh, music videos and MTV, you know, I hope we touch on Beavis and Butthead. Uh, that'll be a big push on this one. Um, you know, the lineage of this band and its promotion during this during this album cycle is purely, you know, off this album, you know, the legendary stats this band has. Yes. Uh, the first two records were great, but this is the album that they got that legendary status from. Absolutely. Um, some other things, you know, the touching on this major label, uh, deal. I mean, I want to say that death metal really started as a, like anti-mainstream thing, like as a, you know, thrash and, you know, other forms of metal were getting pretty big at the time. I mean, you got to think, you know, all the big four were pretty much for the most part going gold and platinum. I mean, especially during this time, just the precursor to Covenant, you know, Metallica had the black album, obviously seasons in the abyss was out in 90 Uh, persistence of time out in 90 Uh, rust in peace, 90 countdown to extinction, 92. So all of these, really pivotal groundbreaking records you know iron uh, iron maiden was even uh highly commercialized by this point um, you had vulgar you know, display of power that came out in 91 absolutely so metal was really huge and yeah like you mentioned uh, you kind of have this post nirvana boom going on uh nirvana i'm sorry uh hair metal is kind of fading out yep. you know for reasons probably it only has itself to blame but you know, the the trends were there. And this was like a, a clear, like, hey, fuck all that. This, we want to go heavier. We want to go more yep. extreme. How can we do that? And so it's kind of funny as a movement that started really as a counter to some of the mainstream commercialized success of thrash metal is now being pushed at the forefront uh, yeah. on giant records. And so really you have the lineup, right? You mentioned... Uh, Pete Sandoval, uh, you have David Vincent on bass and vocals, and then you have uh, Trey on guitar. Uh, this is the first record 
I believe that they had recorded as a three piece. Uh, yep. Their original guitar player was, uh, you know, kind of let go from the band. There was some alleged, you know, substance abuse there. I'm not sure if there's truth to that, but as it stands, this band recorded the album as a three piece and they were pretty much left to their own devices. They, which, you know, most of the time, as I mentioned, like Iron Maiden and some of these bands, if you get signed to a major label, usually that also means that they have some sort of input on how the record is going to sound. Yep. Uh, you're, you're not, you're likely not going to be more extreme. You're probably going to be a little subdued and, and try to be pushed towards a more uh, accessible, like wider audience, I guess. Um, so the fact that this is out and it's just filled with satanic, uh, you know, f- philosophical themes yep. is pretty, pretty wild to me. Well, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head, you know, it's like the next logical step for this band after blessed with the sick. It was, this album feels like a blending of the first two records, but in a more, I don't, I hate to use the word polished because when you're talking about death metal in this era, everyone hated to hear that word. Uh, but it is a refined, maybe that's a better word, Sure, a much more refined version of those first two records, as well as pushing the boundaries for what the album that came after it, which was domination. Mm. Um, the, there's definitely some more industrial elements to this. There's some soundscapes and I believe that's a lot of influence from Trey, uh, being a, a video game guy, yeah. uh, and, and being into that, you know, he was a big uh, proponent of the, ba- of the game doom and mm. maybe even Duke Nukem. Uh, yeah, it's funny you say that because on the thankless, he actually names uh, a few video games by name. It's like Street Fighter 2, Castlevania, uh, that, Sega that Genesis sense. and Super Nintendo. It's that was pretty funny. Uh, I think he also thanked Barney the Dinosaur for captor- <laughs> captivating a generation of children. Or something. <laughs> um, I mean, the there's the soundtrack on here or the uh, soundscape track called Narmataru, which I have okay. no idea yeah. what that means. Um, but it definitely plays like, I, I didn't realize there Castlevania tie in there, but it definitely plays like some of the Castlevania soundtracks, yeah. like, um, you know, Bordello of Blood, anything like that. Um, Rondo of Blood, I'm sorry, Bordello of Blood is a, uh, Tales from the Crypt flick. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's, this album just has a more refined sound, you know, there's, there's a couple tracks on here that just sound like old school thrash to me. Uh, Sworn mm-hmm. to Black has that. Um, you know, Rapture has a little bit of that, but the great thing about him is it had that, you know, it has all those aspects that Thrash didn't have. You know, Dave's vocals are a little bit more, it's almost like he found his footing to what his yes. vocals should sound like on this record. Because uh, the first two records, it was almost like he had two different voices and he couldn't quite figure out what the balance was. Um, you know, every you can hear every instrument on this record. Um, you know, Pete Sandoval's double kicks are right up front in the mix along with Trey's guitars, which we'll touch on that because that deserves its own attention. Um, you know, it's extremely more refined and the fact that the label really didn't have any input and they did this all on their own, you know, um, I believe around 10 years ago, there was a, some sort of video where they were talking to, um, Todd Jones from nails about songwriting Mm. And yeah. he brought up God of Emptiness and he goes, no band at that point had ever written anything really on par with something like that. How strange the structure is to that song, um, but it's still catchy. So they obviously were doing something that that was very much coming from their heart, coming from kind of their gut on this because I mean, the song structures are there, um, but they're not traditional song structures. No, so not by any means. Um just when you think there's going to be a return or like a reprise of like a certain riff, you're, you know, blasting away, you know, at a million miles a minute, you never even circle back to that original riff. It's really, uh, there's so many hooks and, and riffs in particular on this album. Um, you know, do you have any favorites that stick out to you personally? Oh, the opening vocal line of, um, the opening vocal line to rapture. Uh, that's the hook to me. What is it? Confront me, unholy one, uh, bastard Satan. Like, all right, major <laughs> label album, 1993. Opening line is that. Yeah. You know, obviously the the riff, the whole first part of God of Emptiness. Yes. Um, how Sworn to Black starts out is a hook to me. I mean, this thing's full of it. It may not be traditional songwriting structure, 
but it also shows that if you have a good hook, you're going to remember it. I mean, yeah, Beavis and Butthead did a pretty good job of making fun of the uh, the bridge and oh, God of Emptiness, but yeah. um, you know that's what you remember. Isn't that that actor from Andy of Mayberry? Oh my god, <laughs> that's like the best line. Um, what? Yeah, certainly Rapture sets the tone for the the album uh, to kind of kick things off. Um, the riff that really stuck with me is the kind of opening riffage in uh, World of Shit. Oh, yes. It's a really great uh, guitar. Um, I mean, it's it's just like this very slow. It's such a groove. And it while it might be my favorite riff on the whole album, I had no idea because I'd never really perused a lyric sheet. And people who would have owned this album would have no idea either. But the the one thing that is so unfortunate and stands out as a sore thumb on this record is apparently there's like some uh like Nazi white supremacist like slang word that's used on this song in particular mm-hmm. and conveniently left off the lyric sheet for uh, whatever reason and white neighbor uh, yeah exactly but yeah. it it's some sort of phrase and it it sucks so bad cuz it really is just you know I don't know what their politics are personally but you know, you I know, never knew that. I think there is like, you know, I think Chuck, uh, Chuck Schuldiner of Death was pretty vocal in some old interviews that there are like guys who are just trying to be extreme for the sake of causing yeah. shock and it's kind of lame. And that certainly stands out to me as like a really dumb fucking thing that they decided to do. Um, but, you know, it's kind of like the deicide shit too, where yeah. it's like, oh, I'm just going to burn a cross in the, my forehead and like, I don't know. It's just you could have gotten away having a record like this without the use of something stupid like that. Absolutely. It's, it's like, that's lazy lyricism to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yes, the videos for sure, uh, to kind of jump off your point there, uh, rapture and God of emptiness, Mm -hmm. uh, classic videos, uh, you know, kind of tied together there. I think they were both directed by, uh, Tony Kuhnwalder, uh, who is not typically a metal fan. Uh, they were done like six months apart, but yep. uh, those always passed. stand out to me for sure about this album. Didn't he pass away after the directing of these videos? Yeah, apparently not long after he was on some sort of shoot and unfortunately uh, was killed in like a, a fire. So, oh. yeah, but so, I mean, they I mean, stand as uh, a testament of this record for sure. I think they, yeah. they really make uh, the, a lot of the visual element on this. Uh, another big thing I wanted to point out in this, you mentioned the song World of Shit. Um, is that this may this may be the first record that Morbid Angel started using seven strings? Um, yeah, and I think the song "World of Shit" is the first song on the album that has that tuning. I believe it's like a B flat tuning. Um, I believe you're correct. It's a seven string Ibanez universe. That's it. It's got the green pickup covers on it, the yeah. Dimaggio green ones, which. Uh, it I was like definitely stuck out to me as well, kind of reading into this and uh, to even go back to some of that thankless where he named some video games. Uh, some of the guitar players he also thinks on the list are Jimi Hendrix and Eddie Van Halen. Uh, he kind yeah, of quoted saying, the, the undisputed champions of guitar. And another cool thing I like to point out about this band in particular is that death metal at the time, I think you have like two camps. You have maybe bands like death who are certainly pushing the boundaries as far as like progressive and musicality. And then there's more of like an obituary where it's kind of more caveman. I think this band certainly blends both worlds super well. I mean, Trey as like a virtuoso kind of guitar player. I mean, and even then he's not playing like Chuck. I mean, it's insanity. Some of the stuff that he is doing and some of the, you know, uh, tones that he is, you know, with the, the tremolo bar and all the things like it's insane, but still having that caveman riff, what? his guitar playing in particular, it is so crucial to this band that he's the only, he's one of the only guys I've ever heard on record that can actually almost interpret the vibe of what the songs are about with his style of playing. Yeah. It just absolutely. matches it almost note for note. Like even if you're hearing, you know, if you're hearing Dawn of the angry, which is on the next record, uh, dominate, you know, blessed are the sick. Um, you know, it, 
any any song that you hear Trey play on, it's it's gonna um, you know it's gonna emit the vibe of what they're playing. I mean, even the Steve Tucker records, uh, which came much later, um, you know it's them just by him playing. Absolutely. Um, and then yeah, Pete, his his feet man all over this thing. That double bass is what was his nickname? He had a nickname, Commando. Right? Was that it? Was it Commando? I think one of them was Commando. Yeah. Um. The other thing we kind of noted on too is the production, and mm-hmm. ah, it yeah. features a very famous Danish producer. Uh, yep. What? What? What might he be famous for, Dylan? Huh? I don't know. There's like three big albums he's probably most <laughs> known for, and help tune, you know, help tune one of the biggest bands of all times, like Sound. I don't. I don't know. Um, damn Danish guy. <laughs> you know, um, so, we're, we're obviously talking about uh, producer Fleming Rasmussen, yes. who did uh, Metallica's Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets and Injustice for All. I believe he was the illustrious human being that had the misfortune of being told, no, 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 just push the bass down all the way in the mix. <laughs> um, you know, that the big deal producer for this record. Absolutely. Big deal. Which we we did touch on like at one of our first episodes of like and justice for all just mm-hmm. kind of what a nightmare some of that you know backstory was on the production side but this album it sounds incredible I mean yeah it sure does and he was very meticulous in so many aspects of this record I had read that he had even come to the United States earlier uh, just to kind of sit in on some of the rehearsals just try to get the vibe out um, of course this record was uh, done at the famous Moore Sound uh, recording studio uh, in Tampa, Florida between uh, late 92 and 93. Um, mm-hmm. This, of course, is a studio that is a huge proponent of why uh, death metal uh, became so popular. All the records that you love have been done here. Yeah. Um, I mean, the first six or so cannibal records, uh, pretty much all the death uh, records after Scream Bloody Gore, Deicide, Obituary, um, this album Sepultura. just yeah, Sepultura. Uh, this is such a massive sounding record, and so I don't know. If, yeah, go ahead. It, it's great that you noted Morris Sound Studios because typically um, Scott Burns is recognized with anything done with Morris Sound yeah, Studios. But great point. To a lesser name, it's the two Morris brothers that are never brought. I believe it's Scott, uh, Scott and Tom Morris. I okay. think that's their names. I believe one of them helped engineer this record. So there's there's a Morris somewhere buried on this record as well uh which kind of throws back to the original death metal lineage of florida um but you're right i mean that studio is legendary i'm i feel like there were there's even some classic rock stuff that's been done there even before the death metal period uh, you know different mixings you know remixes remasters whatever it is uh you know i had the cd version of this i bought was the original mix uh, it was before I think Eric started doing the dynamic audio range ones or whatever it is, which yeah. don't sound any different. I'm sure it's, I hate to say it. I'm sure it's Eric just making sure they're getting the catalog back out there again. Um, but there's really not a ton of difference in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also shows that you could put this record on and yeah, it's not as loud as a modern produced album. Like you put it on, you noticeably have to crank it just a little bit more, uh, to really hear it. But you can still hear each instrument audibly. Um, everything sounds good. It sounds precise without sounding overproduced and fixed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, I don't know how true to, you know, my ear, if it's been edited or anything like that. I know drum editing existed or existed back then at this period. Um, but to my ear, it still sounds real. I mean, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the drumming in this form of music is either triggered or not. And this, if it, this album is triggered, it sounds very natural. It doesn't sound like a terrible trigger, but I'm pretty certain that is just a mic to kick drum. I, that is correct. Yeah. As far as I know, and what I read uh, looking into this record, it was recorded directly onto a two inch tape, you know, mm-hmm. all analog. Uh, there's no triggers on this record. So uh, it sounds amazing. And really just the, uh, whether the mic placement or how many mics that they did. I mean, there's quite literally a rumble to these like yep. fucking drums. It sounds so big. Um, and so that he was a huge part of that. I think the band may have recorded the vocals and drew the guitars on their own. 
mm-hmm. but they That's did true. fly out to Copenhagen afterwards. Uh, Sweet be, Silent Studios. Yes, uh, to uh, mix basically the entire record with Fleming. So, uh, yeah, huge piece of why this record, uh, he's a huge piece of why this record uh, does so well and is pretty much t- timeless, in my opinion. You can just go back to it and it just sounds great. Um, I mean, it's fantastic album. Um, you know, it's, this was death metal at its peak. You know, it's a weird thing to say. Um, I think around 94 is when death metal really started to kind of have this weird arc where it started to go downhill. Um, because I think around that period is when you started seeing the Norwegian black metal scene really start to pick up. And that was almost considered a complete contrast of the overproduced mainstream death metal that was coming out at the yeah. time. Uh, I think, uh, was it Dark Throne that referred to Blessed Are the Sick being the worst sounding death metal yes. record possible because it was Fen- so overproduced? Fenris has definitely been on record saying that that he hates that record. Yeah. Um, he, uh, which is funny, as maybe some might know, I mean, that band started out as a death metal band. Yep. But just completely, you know, left turn, just gave up on the genre completely. Uh, just tried to do the complete opposite. And yeah, maybe that record sparked a lot of uh, fuel for the fire on that. But yeah, which is kind of funny to bring it back to, you know, death metal being an answer to thrash, now black metal being an answer to uh, commercialized death metal yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, one other thing I want to note is the artwork too. I think yes. that's it's a really um, classic uh, trademark piece of this record. Uh, you know, the first. A uh, few records, they're kind of either illustrations like Altars of Madness has like a Dan Seagrave mm-hmm. uh, uh, kind of illustration with all the little demons on there. You know, Dan, of course, has uh, uh, done works for Entomb, like Left Hand Path. He did a Gorguts record, uh, all the Rivers of Nile stuff. Yeah, Suffocation. Um, and then the Blessed Are the Sick album artwork is like a, an old painting from like the like 1895. Yeah. Um, Great artwork. So, with this, it's more or less like a kind of uh, it's a photograph and it, it features a uh, like uh, recreation of uh, or reproduction of the Pact of Urban uh, Urbane Grandeur and then also the Book of Ceremonial Magic by Arthur Edward Waite. Um, so I think they had just like an earache employee kind of re- like kind of arrange yeah. everything and shoot it. But uh, I've been told or at least I've read that it was a reflection of kind of the album itself like a, a packed yeah there are if i remember right there are ties to each of the songs and some of the lyrics on the cover itself yeah. like at different points um you know in when i read choosing death when that book came out like i learned a lot about what a lot of these bands were into particularly this band you know uh lovecraft you know uh, the Necronomicon, yep. you know, all of that stuff, the occult, anything you you want to think of, any any images you bring to mind on those subjects, this is what that band was talking about and writing on. You know, uh, they ascent, which those subjects are not foreign to uh, extreme metal. You know, case in point, the thing that should not be is about Cthulhu. Um, but this is the only band at one point that felt like, oh, this is terrifying. You know, it, it's almost like uh, Merciful Fate, you know, uh, Don't Break the Oath, uh, Melissa. Those were terrifying albums. And at one point, this was a considered a pretty terrifying album uh, with the subject matter alone. Uh, and that artwork just ties it right in. So that goes along with, you know, there's no such thing as bad press. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it certainly helped. I mean, all of the elements that kind of came together to make this album so unique and special uh, you know, got them some pretty big tours, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, yep. In early '94, they got they toured with Black Sabbath and Motorhead. Uh, you know, roughly 20 or so dates. Um, I think they started in Connecticut and ended in their home state of Florida. But uh, crazy to think of, you know, the people that are going to see Black Sabbath or Motorhead at the time. Uh, do you remember? I should have looked this up beforehand. Do you remember the? black sabbath record that would have been out at, in 94 i was I gonna ask don't. who was singing for sabbath at this point was That's, it tony yeah, martin i would think so uh so well actually i wonder okay so this is just before or i'm sorry this would have come out 
right after Dehumanizer. So I wonder if it's a Dio era Sabbath that would have been uh, on the lineup. Because how, so. So let's see. Doing some math here. To- doing- Tony Martin, uh, Tony Martin. 1994. So, there you go. So interesting. I was curious about that because, yeah, I know Dehumanizer's 92. This so would have been must- cross purposes. Got it. Interesting. Never listened to it. <laughs> I mean, there's there's probably a reason for that. Yeah, why not? Um, Nothing. No know, disrespect to him. I'm just, yeah. you know. You know, it, it, it's, yeah, at this point, it's like, yep, you got the Sabbath tour. It's cool. You've still got, I think, who was even in the band other than Naomi at that point? Probably. Um, was Geezer still in the Yeah, Geezer was still in the band. So, I mean, you still had, you know, two, you know, a half of the original Black Sabbath lineup in the band. Did it? They also get a Motorhead tour? They, it was all on the same tour. Oh, that was the same bill. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this might be post 1916 era Motorhead as well. Yeah. Yeah. You had 1916, March or Die, Bastards. Uh, so you may, I mean, those were, you know, they had those some good records. They had some pretty big hits on those. I mean, yep. Hellraiser came out on March or Die. Uh, I mean, you and I both love 1916. I, yep. I mean, no, no Voices in the Sky or No Voice in the Sky is like one of my favorite yep. songs. Going to Brazil there. is a rad song yeah. too. Uh, the Ramones track yep. on that. Uh, but yeah, so you have that tour uh, and you're being uh, basically exposed to an audience that would likely not hear yep. death metal or we're not familiar with it. Um, now, some of the tours that came after are definitely more in line with what they were uh, known for. I think they toured uh, the U.S. with uh, Creator and Paradise Lost through April. Oh. There, there were some European tours with uh, Dismember and Grave. But yeah, and they they basically got the opportunity and just took full advantage of touring the album, music videos. Yep. All the promotion you could imagine. I mean, all that promotion, all the touring, they still did the work. Again, mm-hmm. I still stick with the label was just there for promotion and distribution. These guys did the work, probably signed a, you know, an unstellar deal. Yeah. Uh, if it was through Earache, I don't know this to be true. I know a lot of bands were really upset upset with Earache at a certain point about unpaid royalties. Sure. Um, and I'm sure they signed some sort of deal that didn't really benefit them in the best manner, but it helped them become, at one point, this was the best-selling album in the Soundskin era for death metal. Uh, they, were, they were considered the third best-selling death metal band during this period. Mm-hmm. I think Cannibal, as we all know, is probably number one. Um, and, but this, at one point, this band was the top selling death metal band, uh, based off of this album alone. And this, I don't even know if this thing debuted on the billboard 200. Uh, if it did, it was low with, with all the work that they did and pushing this record and the tours that they did. Um, you know, it's still odd that yes, they had a lot of opportunities, but they still didn't get those big opportunities to tour with extremely large bands at the time that would have, that could have helped push them further. It's not like they were touring with Pantera. It's not like they were touring with, you know, white zombie or Alice in Chains or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They got a Sabbath tour and a motorhead tour, not knocking those bands in the least bit during this period. Great bands, great albums, legendary bands, but they just weren't getting those opportunities to tour with a, you know, a contemporary band at that point, uh, which is what they ultimately needed. Because I think what we have to remember is, yeah, we look back on death metal as this classic shubs or subgenre and this, you know, almost blueprint for what extreme music is now. But back then, a lot of people, especially in the metal scene, viewed death metal as this like redheaded stepchild, like they do deathcore now, like all the death, the death metal guys do. Um, you know, it was not the most loved form of music because it was so extreme sounding and everyone considered it like a niche genre. Um, I mean, it's this album was massive, especially for death metal standards. But I felt like upon learning it, this band could have been so much bigger. And I think that's why you had a lot of the downfall and why death metal records started to take a dip is you just didn't have this drive to become better as Everybody knew what the glass ceiling was. Everyone knew that this genre had a glass ceiling. Yep. And as we know, in 2023, you don't necessarily have that as much anymore. You no. can go wherever you want. Absolutely. And to kind of add to that, you know, obviously, yes, there were 
probably plenty more opportunities that would have certainly helped this band. The stuff that they were able to capitalize on is, mm-hmm. is truly incredible, especially considering that, you know, you mentioned it wasn't, I doubt it charted, but it also probably wasn't getting played on the radio very much outside of like college radio stations. Yeah. I'm sure not every record store in America was selling this record, you know, so you certainly have, you know, yeah, maybe MTV Headbangers Ball is playing your music video, but you know, you're certainly maybe not getting put out in a department store or, you know, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, classic rock station at the time or something, or yeah, if they'd call it that, but so you, you have plenty of hurdles to, to overcome as a, as morbid angel in 93. Yeah, death death metal definitely had a glass ceiling at this point. Uh, there was no view of it. You know, it's it's funny to think what was considered selling out at this point for death metal. I mean, we've talked about heart work in mm. past episodes, but that was considered a sellout yeah. because of its production quality and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, was this considered a sellout? Um, I've never heard that about this record. Uh, I've never read that about this record. I've read that about maybe the album after it, mm-hmm. uh, Domination, and even it sounds like a just straightforward death metal record. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. So I think through the success of this record, you know, selling 150,000 copies uh, in the United States, basically Columbia saw it as like, wow, this is, I guess is really great. This is something yeah. we got to get on real quick. And so then you have, you know, them essentially signing a ton of that earache roster. I mean, they, as you mentioned, they had a, a hand in heartwork, uh, you know, carcass from 93, uh, and tomb Wolverine blues, 93 napalm, death, fear, emptiness, despair, 94 yep. God flash selfless in 94 cathedral, the ethereal mirror in 93. Uh, so they basically really hit it hard. They were like, we got to get in on this on the ground floor now. And unfortunately, yep. none of these albums even none of these albums even generated like a third, like a fraction yep. of what Covenant did. And these records didn't even outsell, you know, their previous albums, yep. unfortunately. Um, um, I believe there's only one out of uh, all the bands that you mentioned. There's one that we didn't mention. And they may be the only band that successfully transitioned from death metal to kind of a modern contemporary band. And that would be Sepultura. Yeah. But obviously, they were far less death metal leaning uh, than any of those other bands that you mentioned. Right. I mean, they had a tie-in with, I believe they had a Columbia tie-in okay. with uh, with Roadrunner for, um, not the Arise album, Chaos AD. Sure. And I believe that, that album went gold. That's crazy. Yeah. Like, that, that album be, went gold. That'll have to be one we talk about at some point, for yeah. sure. Um. But that might be the most, it's funny they even get lumped in with death metal because really, you know, Beneath the Remains isn't even really a death metal record. Um, But it is, they get lumped in with that because of the Scott, uh, the Scott Burns production, more sound studios, that sort of thing. And that may be it. I think they were all shooting for like, okay, Sepultura did this. Maybe we can get this out of here. And while these successes that all these bands are very, or were very admirable and and great and vast, it was like, oh no, we still have these like 1970s numbers we want all these bands to hit. Yeah. When in reality, these bands were never going to hit those those never. numbers. None it, of these yeah. bands were ever going to have a gold record. You, it's it's truly a gamble. It's like, wh- okay, maybe you're. It's early on. Is this gonna? Where's this gonna go? Right. And like you said, it has a ceiling. Um. And even you know, to their credit, Morbid Angel with Domination sold roughly 70,000 copies. It yeah. wasn't a bad record. Like commercially it wasn't, you know, for the time and for that style of music, but they were still dropped. They dropped basically every band yep. that I mentioned. Uh, they you know, their after ties. that run, they were just like, all right, we cut our losses. We're done with this. And so they were, uh, essentially dropped from giant and, yep. uh, you know, I went think back to Eric, went back to Eric, David Vincent ultimately left the band. Uh, you know, that's when they get Steve Tucker. Yeah. But yeah, so it was just, which may have ultimately helped it. You know, I think somebody, I, I'd read a couple articles that they made a good point, like maybe a return to form, maybe a return to the underground really kind of helped salvage the genre or give it some legit legitimacy. I, I, I fully believe that. 
Um, this is a this is a genre of music that probably shouldn't have stepped out from the underground. You know, there are going to be a few people that probably argue this with me uh, and argue this with you, but I think you and I may actually agree to this. I think black metal is far more accessible than death metal could be. Um, okay. I I purely do. Uh, I think with black metal, you have more options to get maybe a little bit more melodic. That's um, fair. In that aspect. Uh, whereas death metal is like, I mean, you listen to some of those suffocation records, those cannibal corpse records, like, yeah, it's 30 years on, like you can listen to it and go, oh yeah, this is, this is great. This is easy to get into, but like, yeah. you've heard me play bands like defeated sanity and, and all that, that are just so unaccessible unless you know about it. Yes. And you know, I still firmly believe that death metal is just, it, it needed to be in the underground, but it also needs to be able to expand from that. And I think maybe it trying to creep up, you know, into the mainstream was a hindrance for them because mm. then they have all of these, um, they have all of these different restrictions and pressures that are put on them. Like, oh, you have you have to sell X amount of copies on the next record. You have to have a single. You got to write, you know, a radio hit. You got to write a nothing else matters, even though you can't <laughs> sing. I mean, for for fuck's sake, they tried to get Jeff Walker to go take singing lessons before before uh, Heartwork was released. Yeah. Like, come on. Like, it's just not. You know, it's I don't want to be a, I'm not trying to be a gatekeeper here by any means, but it's like, you know, maybe this genre needed to take a step back to make a step forward. Right. Right. Uh, once, you know, one step up, two steps back kind of thing. Um, but it definitely needed to go back. You know, luckily, we David Vincent left after the touring cycle for uh, domination. We got Steve Tucker records uh, that definitely rooted it and they got a they actually got heavier with steve tucker in the band um in my opinion they got sludgier for sure yeah i mean think of all of yeah it certainly has a ceiling and i think there were so many bands that really they weren't doing anything significant as far as like pushing the genre forward there are just so many like copy and paste we kind of mentioned this in our human remains episode there's really bands like that are few and far between as far right. as like trying different things. And, um, unfortunately there were just like a, a there was just like a, a huge aftermath of bands trying to copy what the success of like this record was maybe some of the death stuff. Right. Uh, so yeah, I think it just probably needed a moment to kind of reset itself and kind of weed yep. out some of that stuff in order to go forward again. And and now looking ahead to the present day, I think we're kind of finding ourselves in a, in a renaissance of, this form of and many forms of aggressive yep. music, but specifically death metal is is really uh, th- there's so many wonderful bands that are coming out right now. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, it's a bit of a renaissance, you know. You've got and, and not just in particular to death metal, but the kind of old school sounding death metal. You know, you and I have mm-hmm. talked about this on you know many levels of you've got bands like Frozen Soul. Uh, Phobophilic, yeah. uh, Sanguisugabog, um, a lot of bands that are into the old school sound, Gate Creeper being a yeah. big one for us. Sure. Uh, all those bands that definitely listened to the old school death metal and took that and moved forward with it. You know, death metal went through a lot of different kind of waves of, you know, um, I think the early 2000s, the mid 2000s, a lot of it got really technical and to a point, a lot of those technical bands, there are some really good ones in there, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of it that was just like riff soup. You know, <laughs> uh, there weren't necessarily songs. And with these old school death metal bands, you got a lot of songs. You got catchy yeah. songwriting because they were influenced by classic bands that came before them that wrote songs. Whereas like some of those tech death bands were like, oh, I only like the fast tech parts of this band. Yeah. You know, and that's where it kind of went from. I mean, you've got great bands now. You've got highly successful bands now that were influenced by Morbid Angel. Uh, mm-hmm. Probably the most successful being Gojira, uh, yeah. being yeah. influenced by Morbid Angel. Absolutely. Uh, Behemoth being influenced by Morbid Angel. You know, and we go on kind of the more underground edge of it, of like Nile uh, being from yeah. the Carolinas as well, being influenced by Morbid Angel. Uh, and um, let's not, you know, let's not skip out on uh, the big one, which is Hate Eternal. Yeah. Um, you know, Rutan joined, I think, for the touring of this album. Really? And okay, interesting. I believe he, he joined for the touring of this album and didn't record until the Domination record. 
Gotcha. Because uh, he's he's got a couple riffs on domination, and at that point, Hate Eternal wasn't a thing. He had just been in Ripping Corpse. Yep. And he completely uprooted and moved down just for this band. But it just shows the lasting legacy of Morbid Angel, and not only Morbid Angel, but the Covenant record of you know maybe death metal's first toe into the mainstream a mm-hmm. little bit. Um, no one was really wearing Morbid Angel t-shirts on like at the Met Gala or anything like that. <laughs> Whereas you're, you're seeing some of those things pop up from time to time now, just out of just it being a vintage shirt and a cool design. Yeah. I mean, yeah, some other uh, bands that kind of stick out to me. I mean, like Portal, I think certainly takes yep. uh, absolutely influence from this record. Uh, Yaucha. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. to keep things a little underground, like literally you and I going to shows in Nashville, seeing Yaucha play. I think they're the term God of emptiness core was certainly thrown yep. around a few times, which I think is great. I love the way they are able to, again, an- another three piece to kind of yep. go off of this record. Uh, they do some amazing things and, you know, Tyler's a, um, an amazing drummer. Uh, but yeah, I think the legacy is certainly long lasting. And of course, considering a legacy of you know 30 years at this point there has been some some touring i mean uh morbid angel is still active with trey they just Mm -hmm. uh completed a tour uh unfortunately some uh terrible luck uh throughout the uh cycle on this one in particular but i believe they just finished up a touring cycle with uh revocation and some other bands as well christian yeah i think that's right yep uh and then there's uh, we kind of have like a weird LA guns type of situation here with, yep. is it, I am morbid is the, That's uh, it. I believe there's a couple of minutes. So there's Pete and Dave are okay. in this, uh, lineup. And then there's also some members of, uh, Doro and, uh, Trivium, a former member of Trivium is, uh, within the lineup on this uh, All right. kind of cover of yeah. covenants. They're going to be touring Europe in August to kind of celebrate the 30th anniversary. Uh, you know. I guess this is kind of where we at, or we're at with some of these legacy bands at this yeah. point is that some of them will maybe don't necessarily get along too well anymore and they're just going to do their own thing if they want. And, and you know, it's it's a shame when things like this happen because it does take away from the legacy of what these bands had. Mm. You know, yeah, I think when the original or the classic lineup came together, uh, believe it or not, that was... 10, 12 years ago yeah, uh, to record their follow-up album, everyone was expecting something to sound like Domination or maybe even Covenant. And what we got was a hodgepodge. You know, yep. you got an album with maybe four kind of classic sounding death metal songs. And then the rest of it was this like venture into uh, electronic music, industrial music, whatever you want to call it. It, it ended up being pretty cheesy uh, by a lot of people's standards. and and maybe didn't hold up to what everybody wanted. It almost became the sane anger of death metal at that <laughs> point. And, you know, a lot of people went like, well, that band's done. And then even when they came back four or five years later uh, with the album uh, with Steve Tucker back in the helm, it was just like, okay, it's no one really viewed it, you know, any better. It was just there. And it almost feels like, all right, that it's kind of tarnished. I don't want to say that and be, you know, very, you know, definite on like this band's never going to put out another good record or, or this and that. But it just shows that when you have when you have two bands essentially with the same name doing the same thing, it just tarnishes the legacy yeah. at that point. But we do have these records and yep. this is why we're talking about them now. So, you know, 30 years later, do you have any final thoughts? What should people how would you describe Covenant to someone who's never heard it before? Covenant is a great gateway death metal record to mm-hmm. get into the classics as well as to help push into uh, the modern sound as well. Absolutely. And I also think it's a good entry into getting into weird, you know, uh, literary works. Yep, absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree more. This is a uh, album full of riffs, a very unconventional songwriting style and arranging. Yep. Um, there's some soundscapes on here, uh, really just dark themes, uh, some unfortunate themes at times, but really as it stands, it is perhaps one of the best death metal records of all time. And, uh, I think you should listen to Covenant, celebrate the 30th anniversary, turn it on, 
It's a quick listen. Just do it. All right. I think we've reached that point of the episode where we like to share some recommendations, some things we've been listening to. Uh, I only have a few this week, but one of the things I've been listening to on repeat since it dropped is uh, the new Harm's Way single, Silent Wolf, uh, which is going to be out uh, on their, which is going to be featured on their upcoming record, Common Suffering, uh, through Metal Blade Records. And my God, it sounds so cool. Chris Mills is an absolute animal on the drums. There's double bass. The vocals on uh, that James is delivering on this track is unrelenting. Uh, there's riffs. I mean, it's really incredible to see where this band initially began yep. with maybe more of like a power violence influence. And then the different, like each record, just truly kind of pushing the the boundaries. Uh, it's every time it's like uh, production, uh, you know, arrangements, the sound, it all sounds uh, so wonderful. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that uh, song. In, or I'm sorry. I'm really looking forward to that record in particular. This um, is the first album in like five years, isn't it? It had, yeah, it's been a while. So I think Post Human also on Metal Blade came out in like yep. 2018. That's um, it. Yeah. We got to see, or at least I saw them a couple times on that tour uh, for the record. It was uh, like they, they were on tour with like Ringworm. We saw that and one. Yeah. We went to the end and that was like, yeah, one of the most insane shows I've ever seen there. Yeah. Uh, I remember the guitar player at Ring and Ringworm at the time like had a full beer and from the back from the that small green room at the end came running out and just dove headfirst with a full beer into this crowd of people. Uh, I also drove up to see, I guess, technically the release show for it mm-hmm. uh, in Chicago at the subterranean on my birthday. And that was like, I had just turned like 24 and uh, it was like one of uh, ledges first shows. It was, it was a great time. Uh, and that record you know, it sounds like they're definitely kind of pushing off of some of maybe the yeah. uh, themes and uh, kind of instrumentation from that relation alone. Uh, I also want to shout out the uh, new songs uh, that were dropped by our good friend uh, Mikey Haird and Killers Pay. They dropped yeah. a few tracks. That's uh, cool. It's called Atlas Crushed and Chained to the Grave, which he actually did drop. He dropped that phrase in the episode in the interview. If you listen back to it, and I oh, did he? I was just kind of like, yeah, whatever. And yeah, because I said he he just turned, you know, he just had his birthday. Yeah, and uh, he made a joke, chained to the grave. So I, you know, he was uh, apparently laying some Easter eggs for us there. Man, that is a uh, that that is the uh, after credit scene for hardcore. Yeah, absolutely. What do you got for me this week? I know you've been listening to a lot of stuff. So uh, this week we've got. Uh, I had never listened to this band, and I know you're a fan of them, but the newest Gridlink single, uh, Cornet Juniper, mm-hmm. um, that thing is fast. That thing is yeah, intense. That is very, some of the wildest stuff. Um, so that's been, I, I've been listening to that a lot. Uh, Cryptopsy uh, dropped a new single called uh, In Abeyance, which is their first single. Oh, man, it's been probably maybe six, seven years. I think when their uh, last EP came out and I think this is their first release on a record label in almost 10. Uh, everything's been self-released. Uh, let's see. Um, American black metal band. Whoa, dropped a new single mm. called scavenger profits. That's really good. Uh, let's see. And then I'm going to talk about a modern deathcore album that I've been a fan of called uh, everything bleeds by the band crown magnetor. Uh, definitely in the vein of like early fit for an autopsy has riffs, which, uh, sometimes this music doesn't really have it. Um, but they definitely put some songwriting craft and credit into this and definitely made something catchy for everybody. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, you hit the nail on the head with the harm's way stuff. I was going to bring that up as well. Um, and maybe a non metallic or, um, you know, something that's not in the heavy vein is a uh, little songs by Coulter wall. Oh yeah. I haven't gotten that, to that yet, but you've been, you mentioned that. Uh, how's that been going for you? Uh, it's, it's really cool. It's definitely in the vein of like seventies country. Uh, you know, I had a friend in town over the weekend and, uh, he asked if I'd heard it yet. And we listened to it a couple times together. We actually went and saw, uh, at the, you know, when this episode airs, we had just seen Sanguasugabog at the end in Nashville mm. 
And we listen to that on the way back as kind of a wind down, which goes back to us, you know, listening to country music on the way back from shows like that. Um, great record. Great record. It's yeah. a quick listen. You know, uh, it's definitely, um, if you're like me and jaded by like most modern like country music or you're just completely like put off by it, like this is a nice touch, definitely in the vein of like Tyler Childers and Sturgill Simpson and uh, a lot of those guys like that. Excellent. How, how was that show? That was the one of the wildest shows I've ever been to in and my life. That was at the life. end as well. Oh my god! Um, I there was a point where the the guys in Sanguasogabog tossed a football out and basically said, "Whoever's holding on to this football at the end of the song gets free stuff from us." <laughs> I saw some of the worst things I've ever seen in my entire life. I saw some poor guy jump from the stage, grab the football, and some big hoss guy just yank him down straight on the concrete. Like Dick Buckus. Dang, dude. Man, that was a lawsuit waiting to happen. (laughs) It was, there was some ignorant stuff going on at that show. That sounds Uh, incredible. It was, it was fun. It was definitely fun. Well, uh, thanks so much again for joining us this week on Riff Worship. Uh, Dill, get rested up, get healthy. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode talking about some of our favorite rips and why we worship them. You can always follow us at Distortion891, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, uh, as well as our live show, Vocal Distortion, that airs every Monday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on FM89, WONC.org, and the iHeartRadio app. Uh, For Austin and Dylan, this has been Riff Worship.